Wow, I could watch that video every day of my life. That's what Christ does, the power of Christ to set people free. So thankful for Megan and Vicki and uh, Carolyn for sharing their journey of, of coming to know Christ and, and what he has done. And that's, that's what we're supposed to be witnessing. The Lord Jesus Christ building his church, pushing back the gates of hell, and, and transforming people to be um, more than conqueror kind of people, set free from their sins and set free to serve the living Christ. That's what we're supposed to be witnessing. But what we are mostly witnessing in this part of the world is the church barely holding on to its own. <clears throat> people back and forth who are suffering much defeat. And I, I want to dream with you today from God's word. I want to dream and imagine with you what if... What if we had a powerful visitation of the Holy Spirit? What if we, what if we were to experience Holy Spirit revival? What if, it, what if we were to know what it is to truly embrace the Word of God and take it seriously and, 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 and allow it to change our lives? What if, what if all of God's people were really to experience what it is to have freedom in Jesus Christ? What, what if God's people were to say no to their sinfulness and yes to the glories of Christ? That's what I want to dream about this morning. When Holy Spirit revival comes, because it can. That's what God's people really want, isn't it? Isn't that what we long for in our lives? Isn't that what we, what we ask God for? Isn't that what we pray over? Isn't that what we cry about? Isn't that what we get down on our knees and ask, oh God, Change my life, change our church, change our city, change our region, change our country, change our world that it might know the power of the freedom of Christ. That's what our hearts long for. Well, I have good news for you. That's what God wants to have happen. Would you turn in your Bibles, please, to Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning? The one thing we learn about Israelites is that they wear their emotions on their head. And as we are introduced to this chapter this morning, we find a whole community of people in dust and sackcloth, dust and ashes on their head wearing sackcloth. They've come before the God in this solemn ceremony, and they've come before him with a recognition of their desire for holiness, and they've come before him with grief, and they've fallen to their knees, and they're looking heavenward and asking God to change them, asking God if he wouldn't remove the hurt and the shame and the guilt and set them free. So I pray this morning, as we look at Nehemiah chapter 9, that God will do a mighty work in your hearts individually, because a mighty work done in your hearts individually will translate to a mighty work done in our church collectively, and in our community, and in our region, and in our country. Our Father and our God. We have gathered together in the presence of the Holy Spirit. You are among us. Today has been a powerful day. This weekend has been a powerful weekend. This week has been a powerful week. This month has been a powerful month. This year has been a powerful year. Father, you are at work among us. We praise you and we thank you. And our, our hearts are hungry for more, Father. When, when you give us, we just long for more of what you have. We long for the fullness of God. And so, our Father, we are praying that there would be a special visitation of the Holy Spirit upon us this day. 
I pray, Father, that you would meet us where we are. I pray, Father, that you would not leave us where we are. I pray, Father, that we would come clean before you. I pray, Father, that this would be a day of transition, that this would be a day where we call out for revival, a day where we commit ourselves to the powerful work of God in our lives, to never turn back, but to go forward and see great things of God accomplished in our lives. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God will press so hard upon us this morning that we will not be able to resist what you want to accomplish in our lives this day and ongoing, I pray. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ who changes lives. Amen. If your Bibles are open this morning, I want to talk to you about revival. And I want to talk to Christians particularly because revival only comes to Christians because revival means you've first of all been vived And vived means you've been brought alive by the power of Jesus Christ. So you have been made alive, but God wants to revive that aliveness. That you might know what it is to experience the fullness of God that you may be dabbling with instead of embracing. And that's what we have in in this particular situation in God's people in Nehemiah's day. On the 24th day of the same month of chapter 8, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites also said, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. I want to stop there with you for, for a moment this morning. I want to make four observations about revival that grow out of this chapter, and we'll work our way through it as we go. And the first is this, revival won't come unless in brokenness God's people own their sin. Revival won't come unless in brokenness God's people own their sin. Do you notice what they did in this solemn assembly? It says they confessed their sins. Now listen, recurring sinful patterns in the lives of God's people, let's be frank and honest, represent disloyalty to Christ and represent arrogant disregard for God's word. In fact, that's how it's described in verse 16 of this very same chapter. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. That's how God views it. Sinfulness against God is viewed as arrogance and stiff-necked attitude toward his word. Rather than obey it, you rebel against it. Placing you, placing me, in a state of holy distress. In verses 36 and 37... But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers. You came to set, you, uh, you wanted to set us free, and instead we've put ourselves back in slavery. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Why? Because God's people are sinning. giving themselves over to enslavement and enslaving defeat. And God won't bless that behavior. 
In fact, it requires of us to finally come to the place where we say in our lives, I, I have had enough of the hurt and the shame and the frustration and the distress and the guilt that I've brought back into my life when Jesus Christ has set me free from guilt, I have voluntarily brought sin back into my life, and now I live with constant guilt. And it requires of God's people to come to their senses and finally say, Oh, Lord, God, I don't want to live like this anymore. You came to set me free, and I'm now enslaved again. It requires of God's people to own their sin. Now, let me just mention to you that the measure truly of a church that's ready for revival is her urgency about sin. Urgency, by the way, is marked by confession. The measure of a church's health is attention to the scriptures and turning from sin. Timothy Keller, in his book, Center Church, notes this, the marks of revival are four, as he identifies. There are no doubt more, but he picks out four major marks of revival. The first is this, recovery, from, recovery of the true gospel from legalism on one side or reckless freedom on the other. The second is anointed corporate worship. The third is some sort of church growth. And I would submit to you that as I have been with you these number of years, I have never before witnessed in my mind what I believe is a church in the state of having experienced those three points toward revival already. I believe that this church is proclaiming and living the true gospel. I believe that we have turned from legalism. We have separated ourselves from reckless freedom to trust in the true gospel of Christ alone setting us free. I believe with my whole heart that we are experiencing anointed corporate worship. If you didn't get a sense of God's presence this morning, I don't think you know the Lord Jesus Christ. We are experiencing an unusual time of anointed worship corporately among us. And we are experiencing church growth. Not just in numbers, but numbers are certainly a, a marker. We have grown by 200 people since last September, regularly attending worship services at Calvary. But we're growing in so many other more important ways. We are growing in 50-some-odd in, in men gathering together Saturday mornings, coming before the Lord, calling to the Lord, setting their lives open before the Lord, and saying, Lord, change me. I want to know what you, who you are, and I want you to know me fully. We see women praying, calling out on the Lord, Lord, in massive numbers, I challenge the women to pray for their husbands that God might do a powerful work in their lives. And God is doing a powerful work in the lives of men in this church. We are seeing growth in the areas of our youth and in the areas of our children, in the areas of our programming. Church growth is happening, but there is one thing left, as Keller points it out. And I believe he's right. And it is this. The fourth mark of revival is true repentance. Not just emotional frothiness, but God's people actually taking their sin seriously and turning from it. And I believe with my whole heart that we are just one mark away as a, corpor as a community of faith to seeing an immense 
outpouring of the Holy Spirit's work among us in ways that are beyond our wildest imagination. This is the moment that we're on. This, I believe, is where we are at. God has brought us to this moment. And for revival to come, there needs to be a recognition among God's people of the incredible rightness of God and worthiness of Him to be worshipped. There has to come in God's people a recognition of deep shame and guilt over their sin. There has to come a place and a recognition in God's people of the sorry state of our suffering and our hurt and our harm. And there has to be a recognition among God's people of the incredible mercy of God who will welcome you in, with open arms if you come to him and ask him to forgive you of your sins. Because we need to know if we don't, that from the word of God, in Psalm 51, 6, God desires truth in the innermost being. In Psalm 66, 18, God will not hear the one who is harboring sin. In Genesis 3, 8, we learn that sin will separate you from God. In Genesis 4, 7, we learn that sin will destroy your human relationships. And so I want to submit to you this morning that it is time for soul searching. Because so regularly we ask a question like a day, on a day like today is, am I the one that he's talking about? Am I the one that God is talking to this morning? Do I need to be thinking about my own life? Am I in need of revival? Am I in need of, 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 of recognizing and owning my own sinfulness? Is there sin in my life? Because we, we become very good at harboring and hiding sinful patterns. We become very good at hauling along pet sins that we have allowed to be captive in our lives for years. And so much so that sometimes we become dead to the idea that we are missing out on revival because of sinfulness in our lives. And so let me just throw up for you for one second an idea about the symptoms that something is wrong in your life. There are no doubt many, but I think there are three main symptoms that you may have hidden sin in your life or are harboring sin because it will show up. It does show up. You might not think it's showing up, but it shows up. And the first is this. People who are harboring sin in their lives lack a desire for God. They just simply don't have a hunger for the things of God. They may drag themselves to church, and that's what they have to do. They're not anxious and excited about coming to church. They have to be dragged to church. They have to be dragged into the presence of God, into the sense of worship of God's people. They fold their arms and don't participate because there's no hunger. There's no desire. There's no fire about the, about the truth of, of the living God in their lives. There's no sense of hunger for the word of God. There's just no appetite for the things of God. That is one of the major symptoms that there is sin being harbored in your life. The second is this, that you um, are struggling with um, your relationships. In particular, that you are finding yourself having real relational struggles with God's people. You first of all have a lack of desire for God, but secondly you have a lo uh, lots of hassles with God's people. Uh, we're going to turn there shortly, but we're not going to look there right now. But in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and on through chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. 
and he's having a, a huge relational struggle with this church that he loves so much. And he's saying to them at the end of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, why won't you open up your hearts to me? I have opened wide my heart to you. My heart is offered to you, but your hearts are closed to me. Why won't you open up your heart to me? But he knows why they won't. But he's writing them. And, and then uh, in between uh, uh, chapter or verse uh, 13 and then uh, chapter 7, verse 2, he comes back to it. Uh, why don't you open up your hearts? Open wide your hearts to me. But in between that section, he says to them in the letter, what does light have to do with darkness? What does Christ have to do with Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And so he says to them, the reason that your relationship is so strained with me, the man of God, is because you are harboring sin in your lives. There is a third symptom that sin is hidden in your life, and it is this. You have recurring doubts about God. Doubts about uh, his word. Doubts about what is written in his word. You come to the place where you are, you are doubting that, that God is who he claims to be. And you have all kinds of doubts about salvation. All kinds of doubts about, uh, about the commands in God's word. And whether or not they really are meaningful or not meaningful. And, and, and the simple reason is because you, you are harboring sin in your life. You are trying to justify sin in your life. And you are trying to convince yourself that what the word of God is saying is really not necessarily true. And James calls that in chapter 1 a double-minded man. And he says a double-minded man or a double-minded woman is unstable in all of their ways. And why are they unstable? And why are they double-minded? It says in the context of that chapter, because they are doubting faith in Christ. Harboring sin. And so these people come before God no longer hiding their sin but publicly coming and declaring their sin. And this is the good news of God's word. It says in God's word, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's as if the Lord is pouring out with, with urgency in his word. Why don't you turn to me? Why don't you confess your sins to me? I long to forgive you. I long to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. All you have to do is own your sin. Confess your sin. Maybe we're not sure what confession really means. Confession is a... A, a compound word in the original language, uh, homologos. It means to speak the same word as. In other words, when we are confessing our sins before God or before someone we've wronged, we are agreeing that our action is as God calls it. In other words, God, and when we're confessing, we see our activity the same way God sees our activity. We are not calling it an accident or, or an oversight or a mistake. We are coming before the living God and saying, this has been nothing less than arrogance toward you, pride, and, and, uh, and complete disobedience and disregard and disloyalty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's confession. And that's the condition that's required before forgiveness can be granted. 
If you confess your sins, not just say, oh, you know, I kind of slipped, I made a mistake, hope you, won't mind, hope you don't mind God. No, no, this is actually with, with a contrite, broken heart, coming before God, calling sin as he calls it. And it says, if you do that, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, the things in the garbage that you've picked up that you haven't even noticed in your life and this word forgiveness do you understand the 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 immensity of what this word means it means that God will send your sin away he walks away from it never again to bring it up never again to think about it never again to remember it it is gone from the records and annals of everything in heaven. That's what forgiveness means. And so the living God is calling out to you today. Why do you wrestle with your sin? Why do you live with your guilt? Why wouldn't you confess it before God? Turn from it. Turn to God and experience his forgiveness and his freedom that he wants to give you in Christ. That's what, it's, that's what we're talking about this morning. That's what's required for revival to come. As Alan Redpath writes in his book, the sin God never forgives is the sin we do not confess. And that is why revival does not come. Peter, in the great sermon he delivered in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, says, Repent for the forgiveness of your sins and times of refreshing will come to you. That's revival. That's what he's talking about there. The difference, you know, between lost people and saved people is lost people protect their pride. Saved people face their failures. And they come before God and recognize that our God is a welcoming God. He welcomes you into his presence. And he will forgive you and lift you up and set you free. That's what revival, that's what brings revival to our lives. In his mercy, God switches all the expectations. Normally, if you confess, you get punished. That's what we've grown up to believe. And that's the way it has been. You think I stepped in front of my parents very often and confessed my sins? No. Why? Because I would get punished for them. That's not how God is. God's completely the opposite. Now, I'm not saying parenting should be the opposite. I see you know, he's looking at me, he's going, hey, hey, is this going to work at home? Listen, here's what God does. If we confess our sins, he forgives us. We don't get hurt any longer. If we hide our sins, we get hurt. So what did they continue here to do? I, I believe, secondly, if revival Revival won't come unless we have the good sense to recognize God's grace and his greatness. Now let me just say to you that, that what, they, what they did here in the text is that they stood up and praised the Lord their God, it says. For a quarter of a day they read the scriptures. For a quarter of the day they, they confessed and then they worshipped God. And what were they worshipping? From verses 7 right through, to verse, right through to the end of this chapter, or near the end of this chapter, is the longest prayer ever recorded in the scriptures. But in this particular segment between verses seven, uh, the first few verses here uh, of seven, eight, uh, 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 sorry, five, six, and seven, 
or 5 and 6. It, it talks here about who God is and a recognition of the greatness of God. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, or on it, I should say, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything. And the multitudes of heaven worship you. They begin in this great company of worshiping God and recognizing who he is. That he is the great God. He's the, he's the um, glorious one. The exalted one. Four times in, the, in this uh, section it talks about the Lord their God. You are Lord. You are creator. You have made all things. You have given life to everything. And if that isn't enough, he says there that the angels in glory, the ones who know you most... Worship you most. To know God is to worship him. It's to lift him up. And then the next section, there's a very long section that, that follows that. Uh, verses 7 through verse 15. And, um, uh, and if you have one of the newer translations like the NIV, unfortunately it's, it's done some, uh, some wordsmithing to remove a very significant conjunction that describes the theology of who God is. In this particular section, in this, these verses 7 to 15, it describes all that God has done in, in calling out to people who are, who are living in their sinfulness. And, and in that particular section, it uses this word 14 different times. And the word is a very simple word, but it describes who God is. He is the God of the and. 14 times it just keeps heaping blessing upon blessing, uh, action upon action of what our great God has done. And it's almost as if you lose your breath. It's like God did this, and God did that, and God did this, and then God did that, and on and on it goes. And to have lifted that out of the new translation is unfortunate. So I'm going to read it at the risk of falling over, foaming in the mouth and falling over backwards and having no air left. But it says this. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. And you found his heart faithful to you. And you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. And you kept your promises because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. And you made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. And you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into the mighty waters. And day by day you led them with a pillar of cloud. And by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and, and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. And you told them to go and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. And, 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 and... Our God is a great God who continues to give in spite of our faithlessness. And then as you come to the next verse, you see this word that's like a dagger in your heart. But we were arrogant and stiff-necked and disregarded your word. 
God is glorious and exalted and Lord and creator and, and, ex- and worshiped and the God of and, and, and more, 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 blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Words describing God's people toward him are disobeyed, rebelled, blasphemed, arrogant, disregard, evil, lacking nothing but appreciating nothing. And then we get to verse 17 because God can never leave us there. Verse 17 near the end. But you, yet you, O God, are forgiving, long-suffering, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, loyal guide, gave, gave, gave. You gave your good spirit. You filled us with good things. You gave us things that were already full. Hasn't God been good to you? Has God been good to you? The, The Levites said, stand up. Stand up and praise him. Stand up. Stand up where you are and praise him. Come on, stand up. That's what they said. Stand up and praise him. Lift up your voices. Lift up a praise to God. Hasn't he been good to you? Has he been good to you? Has God saved you? Has he rescued you? Has he set you free? Then praise him. Lift up your praises to him. He's a great God. Worship him. Worship him. Lift him up. Exalt him. His great name. He is the great one over all the earth. He made all things. He brought you into his presence and he loves you. In the midst of the praise, in the midst of the praise, I must ask then why? Why are you disloyal to him? You may be seated. Why are you disloyal to him? It says in the text that um, they had to separate themselves from foreigners. I want you to know this is not an ethnic, racial issue. Not one bit. The one thing we know about the heart of our God is he loves all of the peoples of the world. And if we we understand the great value of the church, it is one people of God, every race and creed and tongue and gender. We are together in this great cause of Christ. What this means is that they were called to separate themselves from those people who didn't love their God. They were called to separate themselves from close associations that were dragging their loyalty away from God. That's what this means. And the third matter about revival, revival will not come unless we take radical action against any and every activity or relationship that leads to disloyalty against our God. Radical surgery is required in our lives. Why have we attached our lives to every other thing but God? Why do you hunt for slavery again? This is the call of God to us. Instead of exodus, they chose assimilation. They were invited to break free from all the entanglements of the world and the peoples of the world who worshipped idols and, and worshipped death and to come into life. God is the one who gives life to everything. They were invited to come to life. And God is appealing to them, why would you go back to death again? Why, why, why? When I'm an end, end God, I'm a give, give God, I'm a bless, bless God. I bring life, life, life. Why do you go back to things that bring death and destruction and harm and pain and suffering and guilt? 
Now separate yourself from these things. Take action against these things. That's the call of the people here. We belong to God. Do you understand that? We belong to Christ. We've been bought with a precious blood of Christ, a, a, a most precious thing. He wants us to guard ourselves from associations that will try to undermine that belonging to Christ. We are slaves when we were rescued to be free. Sin enslaves us. Godless associations will steal our hearts away from God. Listen, you will be like whatever you are most with. And you will choose to be with what you want to become. And I am begging you and urging you to recognize the peril in value opposite associations. I said we would come back to it and look at it. I want to right now, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I want you to see this with your own eyes. The reason that their hearts were strained before God's servant is, and their hearts would not open wide is because they were, they were investing in sinful associations. Do not be yoked together, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. In other words, do not... Hitch your wagon in ways that will influence your heart and life with an unbeliever. Young people, are you listening to me? For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. He owns us as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness or making sure that we are set apart to belong to God out of reverence for God. That's what we're being called to here in this. Leaving attachments, leaving associations, doing radical surgery in our lives on any, any situation that is drawing our heart away from sincere loyalty to Jesus Christ. Revival could not come until they separated themselves from the people around them who worshipped idols, who were stealing their hearts. In 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 to 3, it's stated there of King Solomon that King Solomon disregarded this teaching and he surrounded, his, he surrounded himself with many women who were idol worshippers. And it says in verse 3 that they stole his heart away from God. Now listen, you are either becoming more like Christ or you are becoming more like a lost person. There's only two ways to go in life. And it has everything to do with the time that you spend and the way you spend your time and the people you spend your time with. And so let me ask you in your own life, why don't you make this statement? 
I am becoming more like you fill in the blank. And if you can't fill in the blank this morning quickly, I'm becoming more like Christ, then you need to perform some radical surgery in your life and ask the Lord, what is it that's influencing and impacting my life to be disloyal to the living God? What or who is drawing me away from loving you with a sincere heart? Who is taking me away from belonging to you alone and being ready to serve you with all of my heart? That's what we're talking about here. God picked you. Do you understand that God picked you to be his? It says in the text here that God picked Abram and, and turned him into Abraham, a man of faith. And it's the same of us. Out of all the peoples of the world at this moment, God, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you realize that the Lord of glory, the one we described, the one who made all things, the one who filled all things, the one who made everything alive, the God who is worshipped gloriously in heaven, blessing upon blessing, that God chose you to be his, to come into his kingdom, the most significant being in all the universe has brought you into his kingdom. You belong to him. You owe it to him to belong to him, to live a life that, that, that shows and demonstrates that you belong to him. And he will never let you go. He will keep his promise. He will never, ever let you go. But let me, let me say this to you. You can separate your fellowship from him with your sinfulness. And so much so does he love you that he will never, ever allow your life to be comfortable in sin. Not ever. He will cause it to be miserable and distasteful and you'll feel guilty and all that will come into it. And that's for your own good. That you might come to your senses and say, I can't live like this anymore. I don't want to live like this anymore. And Jesus doesn't want me to live like this anymore. And he died so I wouldn't have to live like this anymore. Oh God, I confess what I'm done and I want to get out of this and by your strength I'm turning the corner right now. I'm repenting. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to take action in my life that that won't happen again. Give me strength to do that. Be separate from anything that contaminates body or spirit so that you can specialize in being completely available to the living Christ. You will never experience all of God until he has all of you. And you can't sin and give your all to God too. And you are delusional if you think sin is no big deal. It is the biggest deal in the Christian life. The biggest deal. The price of personal revival is this. To face your sin and sinful attachments. If you have publicly sinned, it requires public confession. If you have personally sinned, to another person-to-person -person sin, then it's person-to-person -person confession. And sinning against God alone, confession to God alone. That's how it works. And let me just close this by saying this, that revival won't come finally unless we commit ourselves to willing obedience of Christ's commands. It says in verse 3, they were worshiping the Lord their God. You can't worship him in any other way than to obey his word. And they were worshiping him through the real repentance, it says in verse 38, of a binding agreement. 
They determined that they were going to turn from their sin and so that it wouldn't be just emotional frothiness that wore off as soon as they left the meeting. They would put it in writing. They would commit to some action. They would drive a stake in the ground that day and say, today, as for me and my house, we are going to turn from this sinfulness and we are going to serve the living God. We are going to make whatever has, whatever has to happen in our lives, we are going to bring to pass that we might be loyal to God alone, that we might no longer be arrogant in our sinfulness, but that we might be in humility, servants of the living Christ. This is your part in the gospel. Christ calls us. Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to do what? To obey everything I have commanded you. That's your part in the gospel. If you're not obeying the Lord, you are not participating in your part in the gospel. That's what a disciple is. That's what a disciple does. That's what discipleship is. The discipleship ministry of a church is urgently pleading with God's people. Obey God. Obey his word. Put it into action in your life. Turn from your sinfulness. Turn to the truth. It's God's best way for you. You will be set free. You'll live a guilt-free life. You'll know the joy of the Lord. You'll know what great strength in the Lord is. That's what the call of discipleship is. Now let me ask you this morning. What would you need to do physically to stop sinning and to recommit to your loyalty to Christ? And I'm going to ask you this morning to be honest with God. This is a holy assembly. God has called you specifically here this morning. This is no accident that you are here this morning. This is on purpose. God has brought you here by his grace. And he has given you this gracious moment to turn from your sin and to commit to it and to put it in writing. And I'm asking you this morning, what is it that you would need to do and how, what would you need to make happen in your life so that those kinds of uh, so that sinfulness would no longer be a, a, have mastery over your life. What TV programs do you have to say, I'm not watching that anymore? What app do you have to take off your computer? What, what do you have to do with your alone time? Young people, I'm asking you, older people alike, what about your alone time with your computer? If you can't handle alone time with your computer, you've got to take physical action today and stop it. What about your alone time with the opposite sex, young people? You've got to stop that. Listen, one of the reasons that the North American church is not experiencing revival is because the young people are sleeping together before marriage. It's sinful, it's wrong, and God is not going to bless the church of North America until we actually take sin seriously and take God's word seriously. What else would you need to do in your life? What movies can't you watch anymore? What relationship, what association must you rid yourself of? Now, I'm not talking about abandoning evangelism. No, no, no. Listen, we need to evangelize. We need to associate with lost people so we can reach them for Christ. I'm not talking about that. God's not talking about that. God is talking about associations whereby you are participating more in what they do than they are bring, being brought to what you do. Evangelism is bringing people to Christ. It's not becoming more like lost people. That's the difference. That's what God's calling us to. 
And so I ask you, is this a revival turning point moment for you? What's your sin? Are you ready to abandon it? Are you ready to confess it? Who's stealing your heart from Christ? Are you ready to take radical action about that? How's your praise? What's in the way in making an awkward silence between you and God? It's your sin. I can tell you that right now. Are you ready for revival? Do you, do you have another love stealing your life from you? Or do you want Christ alone? And the final question I have to ask of you this morning is, are you ready for commitment? Are you all in? I'm saying to you that if you are, put it in writing. Drive a stake in today. Before this day is over, write down, I must do this. I must change this. I have to disassociate myself from this person or this action today. God, I must confess this to you. I long for revival. We long for revival together. May God be praised among us and outside of us and in this region and in this country because it started with revival in your heart. That's where it starts and in my heart. Our Father and our God, you are here. You are pressing us. You are wanting to settle for nothing less than all of us. Lord, you want us to be all in. You're all in for us. Oh God, I pray that we might recognize that the best situation and place in the world is to be firmly in your grace and mercy and to set, be set free from everything that would, keep, would make us disloyal to you. Oh God, today, do a changing work in our lives, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. I am a sinner set free by the grace of Jesus Christ. I have experienced and I stand before you and testify that I am one who God has been working in. I am one who has been saying no to sinfulness and seeing God work in powerful and mighty ways. I've been learning what it is to truly trust in God and to truly rely on Him and to truly know what it is to experience His free gift of life. And I urge you to, it's, it's never too late to seek forgiveness of God and to change from who you are. It's never too late to go to that person that you've wronged a decade ago and make it right. Don't leave things hanging. I shared with some of the congregation two weeks ago, I received a 12-year-old um, letter of forgiveness, a, a, a seeking of my forgiveness, and it was a blessing to my life and a freeing of the person who sent it. I, I'm, I'm telling you, the mixture in God's people here in this holy moment that they came to was confession and, and, and a binding agreements and standing before God and worshiping Him and reading God's Word and promising Him that they would, they would serve Him with all of their hearts. And that's what we've done here this morning. In our singing, there was confessing. In our confessing, there was singing. Give yourself fully to God. And he will give himself fully to you. Father, I love this people. You know I love them. And I long for us to know what it is to live free in you. Oh God, I pray that in this day, in the presence of the King of Kings, you will receive our confessions and you will forgive us and you will set us free 
and we will stop being disloyal to you. And we will know what it is to belong to Christ fully and to be revived and see the mighty work of God done in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.